think sometimes people would say to me after the sermon, oh, Mr. Dean, you gave us an ancient history lesson this morning. I said, that's because you guys don't know that stuff. And if you want to do business with Jesus, you cannot simply take him as somebody who said and did a few neat things that you might copy. No, it's better. 12, 11, 8, already know not only the Narnia stories, um, but Tolkien, not only Tolkien, but the Harry Potter stories. Yeah. Right. And these are great sagas. And the fascinating thing... This is really sad, but I simply don't know that world at all. I simply can't, <laughs> oh, can't answer that. You question. don't have an answer at all? Like no, flying, no. disappearing, anything? Hey, good morning, everyone. It's good to talk to you again. We are super excited about our podcast this morning. A couple of weeks ago, I sent a cold email to N.T. Wright, uh, the former Bishop of Durham in the Church of England, which is a big deal. And today, he is one of the most important New Testament scholars in the world maybe of all time, his work's that big a deal in terms of New Testament studies. And I sent him an email saying, hey, would you want to be on our podcast? Because I know you're in Cincinnati uh, with a church and we're going to come see you speak. And I would love if you could spend just half an hour, 45 minutes on our podcast, fully expecting that he's going to say no, because he's got important people to talk to and important things to do. Um, But I figured why not take a shot? And I'm standing at one of my kids' soccer games. Um, it's super cold and windy, and the game is going a long time. And N.T. Wright emails me back personally to say, hey, yeah, if you can meet at this house at such and such a time, and the house was literally a mile away from my house, I would love to be on your podcast. And my brain just went in straight meltdown mode. Uh, what am I going to ask N.T. Wright so that he doesn't think that I'm a joke? What am I going to ask him that is insightful or thoughtful that doesn't get asked by all the time this man spends time with the brightest minds in the western world and maybe in the eastern world and i don't know that i've got all that much to offer him and so justin and i sat down with one of the most preeminent scholars of our day uh, with the guy that has written 90 percent of the sermons i've ever written in my life with the guy who influences everything that i think and do about pastoring and about preaching and about biblical studies and about who jesus is and we decided to talk to him about um, about day-to-day life stuff, stuff about what it means to be a pastor in the world, what it means to, to have kids and how to have stories and to read stories with kids. We asked him about superheroes. We asked him about writing and all this stuff that goes on to his day-to-day life. If you're interested in Wright's historical and theological work, and you should be, there are literally hundreds of great podcasts out there with his interviews and lectures. And seriously, go download every one of them. He's insightful, and he's thoughtful, and he's kind, and you could do no better than learning from him. But he's also a guy facing the same world that the rest of us are facing, a world where the church is in a weird place in relation to our culture, where history and politics and sociology and worldview are all colliding in some really messy systems, and Wright, like the rest of us, is doing his best to translate the life and work of Jesus of Nazareth and his earliest followers into the context of our own lives. I hope you love this podcast as much as we love spending time with Professor Wright, and I hope that it spurs you on to read and listen to his work, which calls us all to do real business with Jesus and his teachings and his church in whatever context you find yourself in. Um, Let us know what you think. Uh, We are super excited.
pretty much people who are either new to the faith or yeah. like revitalized back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, when we told them like, oh my gosh, Inti Wright's going to be our podcast. <laughs> they only know Inti Wright is, this is the guy that you quote every week, right? <laughs> this is it's the guy true. that you guys are, you're always it's a woman, Inti Wright said. My, <laughs> my nine-year-old knew your name when I said, oh, I'm going to meet with Inti Wright. He goes, oh, that's the guy you really like. I guess yeah. this is the guy that I really my, like. My son was... This is scary. The, the weight of expectation. It's true. <laughs> my son was like, well, what's, why is he a big deal? And I was like, well, if you had a soccer podcast and Messi was on your, on your podcast, that would be what's happening right here. Oh. But we, we, also a, that, we also did that earlier with, for a podcast we met with Walter Brueggemann, who lives here in Cincinnati. I gathered, yes. Yeah, just told me yesterday. Just a couple of miles from here, and he mm. was he was great, but very very funny, and very very. He's reached a point in his career where he doesn't care yeah. to say just whatever he thinks. <laughs> he would come to CCU and speak at a as a very CCU is a very conservative school, and he is not. And sure, sure. He would say things in a way and you could tell that he knew he this is really going to get under some people's yes, skin, yes, but. Yeah. Common Allen, common, common Grace is going to make people be, be respectful of it, but it was always fun. When we just, uh, for Easter, we have a Easter tradition that started with you too. Um, uh, we, for the last six years now, uh, I think it was Surprised by Hope when yeah. you talk about this is the day we should be raising champagne and, uh, yeah, 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 and yeah. celebrating, so we drink a lot of champagne oh, and mimosas every Sunday, every Easter Sunday. Last, so. last year we got in trouble because we meet in a rented building from the city. That has a very strict no alcohol policy. <laughs> and when they were like, what are all these bottles? Because <laughs> when Archer's together, it drinks a lot. And so <laughs> we drink a lot. And so they're like, what? We're having mimosas? I was like, well, it's champagne. And, like, and mimosas. And like, yeah, I guess. Sure. And so uh, we end, it ends up being usually everyone toasting to where they've seen resurrection in their life the past year. That's great. Um, That's great. This year, instead of everyone toasting, we had I had one guy write a specific one. And his wife sort of... Gave the toast, but um, that's wonderful. Anyway, I we had to keep reminding people the entire time. Uh, hey, uh, save some for the toast. Slow down. <laughs> some of the toast. So one of the things we thought about would be interesting. So our podcast has never been sort of deeply or theological or even historical Jesus stuff, and that we really like that. Yeah. But we find that that's difficult for. And I would use my wife as an example. Yeah. Full time lawyer. She right. has a family that she's a, she's a good mom with. Her interest in delving into deep first century historical yeah, issues yeah, is pretty yeah. limited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so one of the things that's been really interesting for us is how to take what we've learned from the historical Jesus stuff and then apply it in a in a post-Christian, in a, in a yeah, world yeah, yeah, yeah. that's still struggling on what it makes sense to be. We don't, we're, we're struggling, makes, we're not, we would never have been pastors, I don't think, a generation ago. There's a lot of places we wouldn't right, fit right. in at. Sure. And so we're trying to figure out how to be faithful to what we think the scriptures teach, but also yeah, in the context yeah, yeah, yeah. of a post-Christian world yeah, where yeah, yeah, nobody yeah. cares. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, the difficulty there, I remember when I was Dean of Litchfield, which is in the 90s, um, and was preaching regularly in the cathedral, sometimes people would say to me after the sermon, uh, Mr. Dean, you gave us an ancient history lesson this morning. I said, that's because you guys don't know that stuff. <laughs> and if you don't know that stuff, you will, it's not just that you won't understand what's there in the text, you will misunderstand it, you will take what's there in the text and you'll put it into mm. your own context too soon. And, and it's kind of a short-circuiting of, of, of what's going on, that, that you, you pick up an idea and you know how that would resonate in your world and so you assume that's what it meant then. And you really can't do that and, and escape scot-free. You, know, you, you have to do the, the slow work. And this is all to do with the uniqueness of Jesus. It's to do with the fact that what God did in Jesus was the climax of human history. And mm -hmm. that's, 
That's such a no-no in our culture because we are taught from an early age that the climax of human history was in Western Europe and America in the 18th century. Mm -hmm. You know, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, these were the great moments which have changed the world. And we now live in a new saculum. And many Christians have totally bought into that. Right. Oh, we now live in the modern world, so everything is different. So anything that went before, whether it's, you know, Shakespeare or Aristophanes or anything, oh, that was all just back then yeah. and we now know best. And that's just so arrogant. And the funny thing is, postmodernity has blown the whistle on that, mm -hmm. but people still believe it yeah. and act as if it's true. And so then, all Jesus is to them is some guy way back who said a bunch of neat stuff which we might be able to retrieve. Instead of saying, no, world history radically changed with Jesus. And in order to understand how it radically changed, you have to understand what first century Jews would have meant by the kingdom of God. And then you have to understand how Jesus radically reshaped mm -hmm. what the kingdom of God meant. Yeah. Um, but the reshaping went up to and including his own death, which was the accomplishment of the kingdom. And if you want to do business with Jesus, you cannot simply take him as somebody who said and did a few neat things that you might copy. It's better to go that route than not, right. but... Um, you know, better than sort of taking some crazy guy from wherever as your model. But fairly soon you're going to have to say, Jesus really thought that world history was coming to its climax. Now, the interesting thing is this has been rubbished in the last century because Albert Schweitzer and others said Jesus thought the world was going to end, mm -hmm. and it didn't, so we know they were wrong. Mm -hmm. So now we have to rethink everything. That's a way in the 20th century of cunningly relativizing Jesus and doing so with an appearance of historical sophistication. It's actually a modern myth because all the stuff about the Son of Man coming on the clouds, people knew perfectly well in the first century that that is rich poetic language, right. which was not meant to be, oh, you'll look out of the window and there'll, there'll be this guy floating downwards on the cloud. Right. You know, they would have said, yeah, don't be so stupid, can't you, can't you read poetry? Um, <laughs> and and so, so what Jesus did believe was that world history was reaching a climax through which a radical transformation would happen. But when we ask Jesus, so what does this radical transformation look like? He says, well, it's like a farmer sowing seeds in the field and funny things happen and sometimes you wait and wait and then the little seed turns into a big plant or suddenly after months of nothing, something happens or a lot of the seed appears to go to waste but some has a good crop. In other words, when, G when we talk about the world changing, it doesn't mean that on the day after Good Friday or Easter Day, suddenly Caesar falls off his throne and says, <laughs> oh my goodness, there is a God after all, there right. isn't me. It means that something very gradual and slow starts to happen, but with certain extraordinary things. But this is what's going on in Acts. Mm. The kingdom has come, and therefore we are going to go out and we'll be misunderstood, and some of us will get killed, and some of us will you know, miss the point. But by the end of Acts... Jesus is being announced as Lord under Caesar's nose in Rome. You know, mm -hmm. Go figure. Right. And, and so, so what it's about is, yes, I understand people don't want to take the time to do a first century history lesson, but it isn't rocket science to say that many Jewish people in the first century, for good historical observable reasons, really did believe that their history and with it world history were reaching some sort of a crunch, mm -hmm. that Jesus agreed with that but redefined the crunch and actually went to his death in order to bring it about. I think people can latch on to that. Yeah. And then the challenge is, so now, we with our 18th century arrogance or with our 21st century postmodernity, 
What does it mean to say that actually the really significant transition in world history happened when Jesus came out of the tomb on Easter morning? What does it mean to live out of that and to address our issues right. as though that was really the case? Mm. And I think people can latch onto that. It's been, especially given the sort of political climate of the United States for the last 20 years, but the last five years in yeah, particular, yeah, yeah. one of my sort of battle cries with young adults is, I'm not actually going to call you on your political opinion. I want to know how the process by how you got there. And so, yeah, yeah, if yeah. you take this position, walk me through how that reflects the resurrection. Walk mm -hmm. me through how that advances the kingdom of God into new right, territory. Right, right, and right. if people look at me like I've grown horns, <laughs> like like this is a new thought yeah. concept. And I don't feel like it's that radical of an idea to say, of course it isn't. Of course how it do you play Jesus through? It's okay. And actually, we probably can identify in both, like in America, yeah, we tend yeah. to divide into two camps. Yeah, yeah, we can yeah, see yeah. where the solutions of both camps have bits of Jesus and, and the resurrection and in yes, them. Yes, yes, but, but are you willing to do that? Are yes, you willing to yes. submit and then submit the rest of it to Jesus as yes. well? No, it seems to me that's a perfectly good question. And, and I know ethicists in my own country who will say for revisionists in different fields, um, okay, that's an interesting proposal. Show me how that relates to what Paul is doing in Romans. Show me how it relates to the way John's gospel lines up, mm -hmm. what the world is all about, etc. That's a good, good way of addressing the question. Yeah. Um, it's one thing I have sort of been thinking about lately is um, we spend a lot of our time, Jason and I, redefining what we think the role of pastor is, oh, uh, oh. especially in our Western context. But like, it, it, really, we spend a lot of time saying what it's not right. because it comes with so many presuppositions. Um, Interesting. But one thing that what I wanted to ask you is, is something I, I guess I don't get to read much on your thoughts is... What do you think, and maybe even in this in American context or or not, uh, the role of pastor is becoming, or is it changing into something that it hasn't been before? Or because I feel like we have to tread through a lot to just get people to even not CEOs. So because if CEOs. I want to talk to people about like because even in our church they they've heard the phrase new creation mm -hmm. so many times. They're like yeah 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 we get new creation, but it's like. What and what I've come to find out is like, oh, okay, they're getting it in some terms, but what they're, uh, what we're trying to do now is now to be good pastors and how do we really guide you through what it means to live after the resurrection? Yeah. Um, yeah. But it being the past, anyways, thoughts on being a pastor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've seen that in my country too, and in my own life too, the role has shifted dramatically. You know, I was a, a, what you would call a campus minister for a while which was a half-and-half half job. I was half campus minister and half um, uh, academic, you know, mm -hmm. university lecturer. Um, and being a pastor there meant very much just being with people, hearing their stories, getting to know them, getting to be trusted, celebrating with them, sharing their joys and sorrows. Um, and uh, out of that, whatever happens, happens. And, you know, somebody comes to a worship service a few times and then they say, could I just have a word about such and such? Yeah, fine, okay, it's time to do that. So all of that, the standard pastoral stuff. When I then became dean of a cathedral, I was in theory the, the, the chief pastor under the bishop of that cathedral. In fact, it was an administrative job. Um, and there was a lot of just sheer running of things. Mm. It was like being the CEO of... Um, a middle-sized, um, what would you call it, non-profit. Um, and I was not trained to do that. Mm -hmm. and, and so I, I struggled with that and found ways of making it work. But um, the same with being a bishop. A bishop is the senior pastor, and you do a lot of pastoral work with, with clergy particularly, and there's the pastor to the pastors. But as well, you're the head of an organization. Yeah. And I see, I mean, 
the, the church I'm speaking tonight, Kenwood Baptist, I was with the senior pastor there, um, David Palmer, who was interviewing me last night, and seeing the way that organization runs, he has a good team of people around him, but he is effectively the CEO. Yeah. And, and in a sense, fair enough, I would rather have somebody with a theologian's brain and a pastor's heart as the CEO of a church organization right. than yeah. have somebody who's simply a businessman who yeah. doesn't care right. about all that stuff. Well, that's um, So I used to work for a Presbyterian church that was in a, in a really well-to-do neighborhood and they had really good and faithful people right, there. Right. But they also assumed that success at a major company qualified you for yep. leadership in yep. the church. Yep. 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 And one of the things I said a lot was those things might not translate. In the same way yep. that yep. I probably yep. wouldn't be successful for this mm-hmm. Fortune 500 company at the right, time, right. I wasn't geared for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. I agree. But, I mean, I think with the success of churches in the United States, and of course in, in my country there are very few mega churches. Mm-hmm. There are very few churches where the average congregation is more than 150 or so on a week. That's partly because there are dozens and dozens and dozens, hundreds and thousands of little churches yeah, dotted around right. the place. And people like to have a church in their neighborhood rather than drive 10 miles to a big church. Um, we've got a few mega churches, not so many. But as a result, it's easier for pastors to be pastors and hope you've got one or two people in the congregation who can who can look after the bank account kind yeah. of thing. Um, <laughs> so so we tend we tend to stay small rather mm-hmm. than to grow mega. So we haven't hit the same problem. Right. But it seems to me from the New Testament point of view, the the, the need for pastors is is ever present because um, as we were saying before about people in the postmodern world who just don't see why the New Testament might be relevant or whatever, there are a thousand things that come up all the time where people are bombarded by messages from glossy magazines, from television shows, from this, from that, from political discourse. And unless somebody will sit down and say, now actually, you need to do some work on this issue because it's messing up your life and you will never understand or be able to engage with this bit of your life until we've sought. Somebody needs to do that. Mm. And I get a lot of emails from people in the States, but also elsewhere, who've read one or two of my books or seen something on a, on a YouTube video or something. And, oh, Dr. Wright, would you help me understand such and such going on in my life? And I say, look, I cannot be your pastor by email. Right. You right. need to find somebody within a few miles of where you are who is wise, prayerful, humble, and who will sit down with you and hear your story right. and weep with you if necessary and pray with you mm. and then walk with you for as long as it takes. As I cannot do that, and it would be silly for me to try to, to pretend that I can. Yeah. So I do think there is still a really, really important role. What I think we've learned in the UK is that that role by no means necessarily requires seminary education and ordination. Uh, in other words, there are lots of lay people who can be trained and qualified to be what we called pastoral assistants. Right. Because in theory, the clergy are the senior pastors, but we've trained in the Diocese of Durham where I worked, we trained a lot of pastoral assistants. So that then when people in congregations really did need to have quality pastoral time, we actually had people as well as the clergy who were trained and ready to do that right. um, and could walk with them and be with them. And that's really, I mean, we shouldn't have had to formalise it because that ought to be what the church does anyway. Right, right, um, exactly. But um, but there's still a sense for many people that unless they have met the pastor, they haven't really had the church helping right. them. Yeah. And so trying to educate folk that actually the church's ministries are diverse. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so, yeah, we've moved into that. But if you happen to find that you're in a, a community that grows and grows and grows then there are administrative tasks needing to be done yeah. and somebody has to call the shots and you have to have the appropriate committee and, and so on. You have to have accountants in to check this and that. And 
That is, to me, amazingly tedious stuff, but that's because my Myers-Briggs and Enneagram personalities, etc., just don't sit with all that kind of stuff. <laughs> What's your Enneagram? What, what number are you? What do you think? Uh, <laughs> a four. So here's the deal. I know that Enneagrams are really important to a lot of people, and I know a lot of people know their Enneagram, and I know mine. But I don't know any of them as far as the other ones and what they mean. But N.T. Wright mentioned Enneagrams and I was like, oh, okay, he must be really into them. I know mine, so I entertained the conversation. And then he asked me what I think he is. And I didn't want to sound dumb in front of N.T. Wright, so I just made something up. And so I went with four. I was like, yeah, you're probably a four. Which he, if you heard the podcast, is pretty shocked about. He couldn't believe I thought he was a four. He's a seven and his wife's a six or whatever. And I had to go look those up too. I was like, oh yeah, I wouldn't have known. And I just kind of went with it. So sorry, Dr. Wright. I just sort of made something up. Uh, Hopefully it wasn't too offensive. No, 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 no. (laughs) I don't know. When I read you, I read a four. Oh, interesting, interesting. I'll tell my wife that. No, I'm a seven. I'm Are you a seven? seven? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a nine. Oh, obviously. right, okay. okay. Well, I, I didn't know that, but um, <laughs> I'm not an Enneagram expert, but I know enough about sevens and eights, because right. I'm a seven and my wife's an eight. Mm-hmm. When we told Richard Raw that at a conference once, he, he sort of blanched and looked at us and said, <laughs> so, you guys all right? <laughs> <laughs> well, what you said is interesting. In a post-Christian world where people are asking questions about what they need the church for, what's been amazing for us has been where we're willing to show up and babysit we're willing to show up and help people move. Yep, yep, I serve on yep, our local yep, council. Yep, I serve right. on our school board. Yep, yep, people yep. love the church. Yep, there's no, there's no crossword right. to the of church course. when of you're course. showing up. It's interesting. When I became a bishop, I was warned that if you have dealings with the national media, they are constantly out to pull the church down. Mm. But when you have dealings with your local media, local radio station, local newspapers, they know perfectly well that the church is a serious player with drug rehab, with youth unemployment, with this, with that, with the other. And they want good news stories from the church, whereas the national press only want bad news stories from the church. And and it's a major difference. And certainly in the Northeast, where I worked, um, which is a very poor area largely, a few bright spots like Newcastle on time, but that was outside my diocese. But most of the diocese I served was the old Rust Belt, former coal, steel, shipbuilding, etc. that had all gone, mm-hmm. high unemployment. And the church was right there where the pain was, community right. after community. And as a result, the local council leaders, the local mayors, the local members of parliament knew perfectly well that the church was where it was at. Yeah. And I was proud to work with yeah. those people. That was great. Do you, yeah. see, do you see yourself ever going back to pastoring? Hmm. Who knows? Who knows? My life has been a string of surprises. <laughs> Do you get tired of writing sometimes? No, I never get tired of writing. Oh, you? I guess. I, 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 <laughs> I, when I think of writing, I'm an artist, but yeah, when right. I think of writing, I'm like, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> there is always, depending on what you're doing immediately before settling down to write, there is always a bit of a hump to get over. I don't usually suffer from writer's block, but there's a sort of sense of, let's just put it off and do some more planning or read a bit right. more before but but actually once I'm writing I really enjoy it it's, um, how much do you actually write on the for everyone commentaries when I read them I'm like I wonder if this was him or this was not when you do the for everyone yeah, like the because yeah. are some of the like the stories not oh, you oh the stories at the yeah. beginning oh I see I see no um 
probably a third of the stories are fictitious. Got it. Or they have been significantly altered in order to protect the guilty. Um, <laughs> because there, there are, I mean, one or two I could think of where actually some very poignant and personal stories which which are about me but you would never know it from reading that because mm. uh, I've adjusted it because because the people concerned would not like that bit to be told about them as it were um, but yeah my, my wife did say at one point said sooner or later somebody's going to write a biography of you consisting entirely of stringing together those stories <laughs> but the thing was that planning that series that was the hardest thing my publisher said we want to do this we think you're the person to do it but each segment, pretty much, you can get away with one or two that don't, each segment has got to have something which is like the beginning of a very popular level sermon. Right. Just a little story. I think that's why I would tell story, I wonder yeah. if you did this. Cause it, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. yeah. No, quite, a lot, quite a lot of it is, is, is drawn from life. Right. Um, occasionally I just invented completely fictitious scenarios. There was one somebody who, um, just as, because, you know, that's how I wrote, wrote the stuff, because I knew roughly what I wanted actually to say about the passage. But the really hard bit, which I used, I mean, I had a regular rhythm of revising the translation, and then I would quite literally take the translation to the prayer desk and kneel down at the prayer desk and be praying over it until the opening illustration popped into my head, and I'd go straight back to the computer, mm -hmm. phew, and then the thing would write itself, and then we'd do the next bit, and the next bit, and the next bit. <laughs> your, your work's interesting because you've managed to transcend people not reading anymore. Because well, a lot I of people hope, don't... Hope, my my master's degree advisor told me not to bother with writing right now because he said, he said it's not hard to get published because you could self-publish, but he said people aren't reading. So podcasts and videos... Yeah, and yeah. that I mean, I have observed that, that over the last five or six years, there's been quite a shift. I get a lot of emails. I mean, a ton of emails. And it used to be, Dr. Wright, I read your book on such and such, and I have this question... And of late, it's, I, I saw your video on YouTube where you said mm. such and such. And then they say, could you explain this and that? And I'm thinking, go read the books. <laughs> it's like, so what did Jesus mean by the kingdom of God? And I think, actually, I've written about three books. On that. <laughs> it's not my job now to send you an email trying to summarize it. How can I do that? But so I've, I've become aware that, yes, um, at the same time, interestingly, 10 years ago, People were saying grandly, oh, e-books are the thing, Kindles are the thing, people are not going to buy real books. And that's much flipped. Much. And that has that now is, flipped. They're that the, is, like, at an all-time low right yeah, now. Yeah, that, 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 has, that has now flipped, that books are making a comeback. And I'm delighted at that. I mean, I'm a book person. You know, yeah, yeah. If you visited my house, I mean, there's a shelf of books over there, but um, I don't know where they keep all their other books. I think they've got quite a few. But, I mean, we are just... Did they, did they put into your books out? Just to <laughs> well, we're, we're it must be somewhere. But, but, I mean, I... I we we are just we are just book city and uh, <laughs> no and I when I think in well where we're at schools push reading now more than they ever did even when I was growing up really? um, like really? my kids like yeah, every kid I know right now is yeah, like yeah, yeah. it's the most important thing but uh, which is interesting I, one of the things that delights me about my grandchildren um, who go twelve eleven eight four one um, the twelve eleven eight already know not only the Narnia stories um, but Tolkien not only Tolkien but the Harry Potter stories yeah. and these are great sagas and the fascinating thing I've observed even the eight-year-old he understands plot character mm -hmm. narrative twists who's the partly good guy who's then got mm. a bit of a shade on him etc etc yep. and I'm thinking the sad thing is they're not reading the Bible not yet. And one of my minor missions in life is to persuade my grandchildren to read because they've got what it takes to understand the right. plot and the narrative. Do you know what I do? I think I have a key. 
Go on, go on. And so when it comes, so one thing I've had trouble with, because we read a lot. I've read Narnia to all my kids. But I was like, okay, well, what's the difference when I'm reading this one night Mm -hmm. and then I pick up the Bible and read that? So they're smart to know, okay, we go to church for this and we don't go to church for these things. But um, I, I think every night when we'll have a string maybe of two months and then we'll take a break where uh, we tell the stories orally. Hey, tonight yeah, yeah, we're not reading. Yeah, 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 today I'm going to yeah, tell yeah. you a Bible story. And that way they can follow along if they yeah, want. Because yeah. just reading the narrative is not very much fun. This is, this is like a real it. problem. I, one of the tasks that my publisher wants me to do is to produce a children's Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm fed up with children's Bibles. They're, well, yeah, they're because so they jump, bad. Well, they jump from, uh, you know, the creation to Noah's Ark, and they skip all... And... And I'm not Mr. like over masculinity kind of guy, yeah, but I'm yeah, always yeah. like, oh, and the the art is always lambs and rainbows, and I'm like, <laughs> I like to tell about Esau with his hairy arms and you uh, know shooting uh, bows uh, uh, and uh, uh, uh. and gunning well, and killing. And... For, for me, for me, actually, the story of Cain is really significant. You know, Cain gets married and has a family. Um, uh, Cain builds a city. It goes Cain, to seas. Cain, Cain does stuff which was part of the original mandate in Genesis, but because he is fallen and a murderer, um, the family and the city go to the bad. And then the way the narrative works is that Abraham, God calls Abraham, who has no family, who leaves the city behind. And he, he, he's a childless nomad. And this kind of is the, the reversal of the, of the... You know, it's all sorts of stuff like that. So I want to try and bring that out and to, to show how the narrative... Act. But I agree, you can't simply say in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth mm. because okay we, we've heard this before right but if you um, can tell them about oh there was darkness and there yeah, was yeah, yeah, water yeah, yeah. and chaos well, you can do that yeah you, it, the crucial thing for me is going to be finding the right artist right mm. because um, well do <laughs> 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 for free because <laughs> you know when when we read um, little people's books to our, our little grandchildren um, you get this big thing with splashy colour all over the place and maybe 30 or 40 words on this page and 30 or 40 words on that page but the artist is filling it in there's lots of stuff Mm. going on around the edges and the plot is as much carried by what the artist is telling you Mm. because there isn't that much space so you see the whole temple theology business which having read people like John Walton and Greg Beale and others and discovering that actually Old Testament scholars and Judaica scholars have been saying this for years, that Genesis yeah. 1 is the story of the creation of a temple, a heaven and earth temple, with humans as the image in the temple. How do we all miss Ooh, that before? I don't know you this. Yes, yes, no, you, yes, that's you do know fascinating. That. You do, no, no, you do know that. You're kidding me. I yeah. do know that. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. I've yes. known it forever. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, but, but how many... I've never but, heard that one. But how many Western Christians... Have even thought of that, right? Oh, that that's what it means to be in the image. But then the line which goes on from there to the end of Exodus, with the construction of the tabernacle as a microcosmos, with Aaron as the human being who who sits in the middle, stands in the middle of it. The line on to the monarchy with the building of the temple. Then it all goes horribly wrong with the Exodus. And how did we miss? How did nobody ever tell me that if you're in the exile in Babylon and you're reading or editing the story of Genesis? Um, uh, one, two, and three, 
you know perfectly well, duh, this is our story. Right. They're given this wonderful land and they mess up and they get kicked out. Right. Of course the exile is the story of Adam and Eve and vice versa. Right. But once you start making these huge narratival right. connections, they say, so where does Jesus fit in? Well, it's obvious this is the real return right. from exile. And then going all the way to, to Revelation. Yeah, why aren't you making this book, man? Uh, I'm trying to. I'm trying this should to. probably take a little more precedence. Well, 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 <laughs> well, well and kids well, can get well. it. So we're exactly. Reading, kids, kids can and do get it. We're reading it. Harry Potter with our kids right now. Yeah. They, yep, yep. they would read it and they're getting the character nuances they're yep, getting exactly, themes exactly, they, they figured exactly. out early on whoever the dark arts teacher is substantial to the story every time they, they found the yep, pattern that yep, she put yep, in the book yep, yep, and they're yep. in first grade no, exactly well I say we, we were on vacation with our grandchildren last summer and my wife who knows all these stories extremely well was um was quizzing them, really. Particularly if you're in a restaurant and it's kind of a grown-up meal, but the kids are restless because it's going to take 45 minutes for right. the food to show up when you've ordered it. So Maggie's inventing quizzes mm. about Harry Potter and Narnia nice, and yeah. so on. And the kids are, are absolutely up for it. And then I, I tried doing it with even some rather basic bits of Bible. And it was like <laughs> grinding of right. ears. Well, and I think that's, you know, I don't know how it is in the UK, but I definitely know here that we have separated the fantasticness of the story yeah, yeah, to yeah, make yeah, it yeah. okay well this is the serious bible stuff and whereas like Percy Jackson and I know, I know, Harry Potter I know. but of course the thing is what we've done is we have told the turned the Old Testament into a Christian version of Aesop's fables mm-hmm. that here is a little yes. story about Abraham a little story about Noah and then it's how we can learn a little lesson yeah exactly yeah, instead I of it being instead that. of it being what <laughs> There we are. Anyway, yeah. sorry, how did we get into that? Uh, hey, really quick, yeah. Um, yeah. you uh, yeah. you have to get your grandchildren to read this. Uh, there's a series written by a, uh, a guy who, someone told me about it, and they're like, oh, it's a Christian, you know, near, uh, whatever. whatever. I was like, eh, I don't want to read it. You know, if it's Christian, usually it's really overly allegorical, not very good. It's a children's book series called The Wing Feather Saga. Oh, don't know this. It is the best thing okay. I've ever read. And yeah. it wasn't until book three where I was like, I was like, right. well, what's Christian? And I, uh, it oops. hit me. I'm like, oh. send me an email and remind me. Of I that. will. Yeah, and it's like this guy, he's actually not a writer. He's a musician. Oh, right. Okay. And he wrote these four children's books. And they're actually getting ready. Pixar is getting ready to do a, uh, oh, good. an animated series. Exciting. And it's so good. Great. Um, hold on. There's two questions I have to yes, ask you that okay. I told my okay. children I would ask you. What superpower would you have if you had a superpower? <laughs> I told them. They told me to ask you. This is really sad, but I simply don't know that world at all. I simply can't, <laughs> oh, can't answer that You question. don't have an answer at all? Like nope, flying, nope. disappearing, anything? Nope, nope, nope. Um, and then what's your favorite movie? Uh, I'm not really a movie buff at all. My wife, wow. sees, my wife sees the movies. What have I enjoyed? What films have I enjoyed? I go way back. Um, I still really love and appreciate that old movie Amadeus, which was from Ooh, the eighties. Amadeus is good. Um, it's a great movie, and it's profound because it understands. This is Peter Schaffer's play, which they then made a movie of, and they under, it understands Mozart's music, and it raises some of the huge life issues within that. Um, yeah, but I, no. So I'm one of the ways I stay sane is by not watching very much television. Right. And by well, it's watching, also how you probably have a lot of time for writing well, and exactly, reading. Exactly. And reading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my my wife will tell me if there's a movie I really must see. Mm. But she 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 when we do get to the movies together, it's good because we will talk about it for the next three days. You know, well, what was going on then? Do you remember that? Right. Um, which is great. But I find I, I actually prefer live theatre. Um, mm. Because I much prefer the reality mm. of actors and actresses actually engaging yeah. with you, and and you're at liberty in the audience to watch whichever bit you like. Whereas in a movie, the director says 
let's just ramp up the emotions here. So just at the crucial point, they focus in on a child's face or somebody's hand reaching mm. out or something. And I'm thinking, this guy is just manipulating my emotions. I don't, I don't like that. I kind of resent it. Mm. Um, so I, uh, even on the plane yesterday, I, I don't watch movies on planes, but the guy just across the aisle from me was watching something and I was working and I kept seeing his little flickers and I didn't even know what the movie was about. But two or three times I thought, oh, did you have to do that? <laughs> just the director mm. um, playing on... Your emotions as though it's like a sort of that's a, a good. Touché, UK. Well, well, take well. that Americans in your movies. No, that's no, good. No, we have British movies as well. I mean, some of the great ones like uh, Chariots of Fire, David Putnam's oh, movie, geez, which I knew David a bit because he's in the House of Lords. And, and mm. uh, when I was Bishop of Durham, I, I met him there. So I mean, there are. It's a wonderful medium. You can do great things with it, but it's also it's also very dangerous. Um, in, in ways that I think won't emerge in our culture mm. for quite a bit. Have you, ever seen, have you ever seen the play, The Last Days of Judas Iscariot? No. It's a trial of Judas in purgatory. Oh. oh. And the devil ends up arguing for the holiness of God. So the soul of Judas <laughs> goes to hell, and then there's this thing. And it was written by a non-Christian and somebody who firmly understood their first, their first temple Judaism history. Uh, uh, like Caiaphas uh, is called... Peter's called, the mother of Peter's called, and they get like the, and it really was, because I saw it in seminary, and it really is this push between sort of the rev, the, the revolutionary impulses centered around the Jesus stuff and right, the religious right, stuff centered around right. it. It was, and at the end of it, I'm weeping, wow, just wow. weeping, and I don't normally no, do that. I, I, don't, I don't know that. I don't know that. It's really good. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, yeah. Thank thanks you so, so much for your time. time. Last Not at sure, all. Thank you. Yeah. Is that it? No more questions. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> we don't want to. And, and I failed on two of the crucial questions. Um, <laughs> it's true. We will see you actually. <laughs> well, today, tomorrow morning, and okay. we're actually going to be in DC when you're oh, there this week. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah so they've so, asked us. Our church is so we. We're our church is an independent church. Okay. And we're looking at partnering with them and joining a network. We've, okay. we've been okay. 10 years and started looking good. for some of the resources. Good. So Great. if Great. we say hi, you can yeah, be like, good. hey, good. guys. Good. Nice. <laughs> Those um, guys. And, and uh, my, my colleague in Wisconsin would, would be cross if I didn't mention, I'm sure you know, the NT Write Online courses. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. NTWriteOnline.org. Yes, Bible study courses. I had no idea. I don't know. Thank you. He's I, not an online person. I, yeah, I'm not an online person much. Um, uh, but if you... Uh, oh, look at that. You have a pen. Can I keep the pen? Yeah, keep the pen. Ooh, you weren't going to give it to me, but <laughs> I'm taking the pen. No, it's, fine. it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> You're like, take There's the more pen. That came Just from. take the pen. <laughs> um, no, the, uh, yeah, like I said earlier, like we, you've written so many sermons for us. You, it's, and it's uh, been, uh, actually, it's yeah. actually awesome. I which love is, Which is worrying. I mean, quite seriously, every Sunday morning, I pray for all the people who I know will be using some something that I've written somewhere right. to preach from because you know I'm not perfect. Um, sure. That's my wife. No, but um, it's <laughs> so reaff- it's for me and coming out of the tradition I did and becoming who I've become and doing what I want to do as being a pastor of this small church. Yeah, uh, it is so refreshing and life giving when I read words where I'm like, okay, I didn't know this, but I I feel in my soul that this yeah, is yeah, yeah, right yeah, and this yeah. is what I want to believe in and one of the things that happened to me this during Lent I always read uh, Pope Benedict's Jesus of Nazareth okay okay reading him he, and I don't know how much he interacts with your work or you interact with his works really I reviewed the, his Jesus books when they came out but no he's very much dependent on the earlier Catholic, yeah. Ger- German Catholic scholarship from the 50s and 60s and was, fair enough that's where he was trained right. and, but it was really refreshing to see that 
the things that I read for you aren't just being made up out of wholesale cloth. Like this is these ideas are bouncing around, and to see sure. Sure. somebody from a tr way different tradition yeah. than I'm from yeah. Yeah. echoing yeah. the same thing because his his stuff on the resurrection is yeah. accessible and oh. quick and very and, good. And, and actually, when I reviewed his whichever Jesus book it was of his. I was astonished at the atonement theology coming through mm -hmm. it. He's drawing mm -hmm. on Isaiah 53, etc. Yes. And I said to the um, review editor at the Times Literary Supplement, who's uh, Rupert Short, who's a former student of mine who, who is himself a practicing Catholic, um, I said, Rupert, at some points he sounded like an evangelical there. Mm -hmm. And Rupert said, oh yeah, there's a rumor in Rome that actually he's a crypto-evangelical. <laughs> but I think that that's not the point. The point is he actually does believe, like Karl Barth, that doing theology means engaging with scripture. Mm -hmm. And if you engage with scripture, sooner or later you're going to run into that stuff. That's right. And if you're a good theologian, you will want to integrate it. Yeah. And, and good, fine. Yeah. Okay. You motherfuckers need Jesus. Better than your wicked way.